0: The following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, so Genesis 21, we're going to continue our journey through this book of Genesis. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we have in the current age that we live in, and it doesn't take you long to notice this, is just how angry everybody is. I mean, it there is very little desire to resolve conflicts, and there's very little appreciation for a word I'm going to use, that maybe some of you need to go get defined, diplomacy. Um, you can't look at our world leaders today and think to yourself, wow, there's a lot of diplomacy going on. Being reasonable and mature when hard things come up is a long-lost character trait. Cancel culture has captured every part of our world from, from business to sports to entertainment. And you say something that people don't like or they don't agree with or it seems just wrong to them in some way, you're done. You know, as Uncle Cy from Duck Donnies would say, he gone, right? I mean, you're, you're gone, right? Uh, what happens in a culture like this is that it seems like everybody and everything is at war. You know, so, so you go to the grocery store almost bracing for a fight. You know, you you drive down the street and you get mad at the messaging that's going on around you, whether it be on the on a billboard, it be in a, a, a you know, a a Spotify announcement, or it be people standing on the street signs with street signs holding up. You know, you just get angry about things. We enter a room with strangers and we immediately assume there's gonna be a conflict. I went and got my haircut this week from a, a new barber. I don't, you know, I just kind of randomly pick people, um, and I do it because I want to maybe engage them in conversation at some point. And I walk in the door, and my I immediately get on the defensive, like, okay, I'm in war zone here. Strap it on, right? And I had a great haircut. Anyway, uh, we immediately assume something like that. There's a reason why family gatherings, people tell you, do not bring up two things: religion and politics. Don't bring them up. We honestly have no idea how to deal with disagreement and conflict in our world. It's a lost art. And the crazy thing is, as Christians, we enter this world with the same attitude. Everything is a conflict. We feel like we're always on the defensive, like we're always at war. And don't get me wrong, we we are in a real spiritual war, and that's going on around us. But we forget that war is not With flesh and blood. We think that war, to wage the war, we do it just like everybody else around us is doing it. The non-Christian world is using insults, arguments, raising our fist in protest, and canceling people. And if it's not done or doesn't work the way we want it to work quick enough, um, believe me, in 2020 I heard this enough from some of our believing brothers and sisters, it's time for a revolution. And we think, oddly enough, that that is what is advancing the cause of Christ as we take the fight to the world. And it sounds macho, it sounds bravado, but I have a question for us. What if we have it wrong? What if we've allowed the sinful, angry culture To tell us how we are to engage that culture with the things of God. What if there's actually potentially maybe a better way? What if there's a way that God would show us? Now this sermon's, sermon this morning, I'm going to be really honest with you. For those of you who are warriors, this can be hard for you to take. For those of you that are angry at your world, this can be challenging those of us that think that we are supposed to go out and just fight and bring conflict to the world, this is going to be really hard. Because we're going to see something that happens in a patriarch, the very first patriarch, in the way he handles an aggressive enemy that looks radically different than the way you and I address it. And we're going to see something played out in the Bible that actually reveals that this should be our attitude. What if the gospel is advanced through moments of peace more than through moments of conflict that's what we're going to learn this morning very simple big idea if you're new with us we give a big idea every week this is what the text is about and what the sermon's about and you're going to see it it's just it's the two points of my outline until I get to the third point but we're going to learn this God is with his people and his people serve him by being peacemakers. So let's look at point one, which is God is with his people. We're going to see this in verses 22 and through 24. Now you might remember if you've been with us, this king of If you haven't been with us, he's a king in a place called Gerar, which is an area, if you know your Bibles very well, if you don't, it's just a people called the Philistines. The first time we're introduced that these are the Philistines in the book of Genesis, and we first met Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20 when Abraham lied to him that Abraham's wife was his sister. He said, this is actually my sister, and Abraham did that to protect himself. This is the same Abimelech. Only this time in Genesis 21, he brings a partner with him. He brings his general along. General Phicol, who comes with him. And what this indicates is, Abraham has a rising stature in this part of the world. In other words, this is a king coming with his general, and they are coming to do, if you will, some foreign international relations with a king that they are recognizing is rising up in power in their area, and they need to have a conversation. And notice two things that Abimelech notices about about Abraham. They're very interesting. Verse 22, it says he recognized that God was with him in all that he did. Now it's obvious to Abimelech as he observed Abraham's life that God was with him. Now Abimelech has seen this in Genesis chapter 20. After Abraham lied to him, God showed up miraculously in a dream to Abimelech to protect Sarah. And warn him, if you touch this woman, you're going to die. Well, that gives you some indication that God's on Abraham's side. And in the same dream, God told him that Abraham was a prophet. A man of God, and he should ask this man of God to pray for him. And when Abraham does pray for Abimelech and his people, his entire household is healed, and all the barren women of his land are now having children. But as he watched Abraham prosper in the lands around him and see his flocks grow and his servants increase, he also knows very clearly God's with this man. Something unique is happening here. On and on, Abimelech has watched as God has been with Abraham. But notice the second thing he recognizes about Abraham, which is actually ironic. He notices that Abraham has a dishonest streak in him. <laughs> He asked Abraham to swear that he would not deal falsely ever again with him or his posterity. Now you can do the math on this for a moment, but just this makes all the sense in the world because Abraham is an odd guy to Abimelech. He'd be an odd guy to you and I. On the one hand, God is with him and God's protecting him. On the other hand... The dude is shrewd, he lies to protect himself, and he put Abimelech's life at risk. You can see the challenge here. And so you're seeing this, this foreign king, if you will, rising up in, in, in influence. What do you think Abimelech wants to do? Hey man, can we cut a treaty here? You're making me a touch nervous. God is with you, and you're willing to lie to protect yourself, which tells me you're willing to put me at risk again. Would you swear that you'll never do this ever again? See, God was with Abraham, and he could be more than shrewd, and Abimelech recognized that about him. Now, this is very interesting, because it's helpful when you see this in the early parts of the Bible, because it gives you something that's essential to, to the story of God's people in the Bible. It's important for you as you read your Bible because you're going to notice things in the Bible where you're going to go, what in the world just happened? You're going to first of all notice that God's people aren't perfect and they will sometimes do, I want to say it this way, less than savory things that they will hopefully grow out of. We've seen this in Abraham's life, have we not? He lied twice about his wife. He had a baby with another woman, thinking that that was the right thing to do. And at times, he's done things that's literally left us scratching our heads. Like, what is he doing here? At other times, he does remarkably godly things. He obeyed God, left his homeland. He prayed for Lot, that God would deliver him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God did. He obeyed the Lord by circumcising his son on the eighth day and naming him Isaac, as the Lord commanded him. And see, what you're going to notice is with God's people, there can be this dual challenge all the time. They're not perfect, but they're God's. And the reason for that is, early in the parts of the Bible, we are seeing something absolutely fascinating. We're seeing that our righteousness or our status before God as his children is not dependent upon our actions. It's dependent upon God's declaration. R.C. Sproul put it like this Martin Luther said, in our justification, or our being made just or right before God, we are one and the same time righteous or just and sinners. He was saying from one perspective in one sense we are just or righteous before God in another sense from a different perspective we are sinners. In and of ourselves under the analysis of God's scrutiny we still have sin we're still sinners. But by imputation, or we could say it this way, by declaration and because of Christ's righteousness, and by faith in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is now transferred to our account, then we are considered just or righteous. Now look at that very last phrase. This is the very heart of the gospel. Now that's what you're seeing here in Abraham. He was a man who struggled with sin. But because he believed God, he was counted, declared as righteous before God, by God, and was one of God's children. Now what's interesting is, don't you see this throughout the Bible? And think about Moses, Moses was a wonderful dude. But he gets to the edge of the promised land, he gets angry at the people of God. And God says to him, Moses, you can't enter the promised land because of that. King David... What do you do with King David, an adulterer, a liar, a murderer? Because of that, God said that you won't have peace on either one of your sides, and there's going to be one, rise up in your own family. What about Peter? Peter, after being with the risen Christ, was warned, there will be a day that will come when you will deny me. Peter said, no way, there's no way that's going to happen. And sure enough, he did. He was a coward. Can you relate to that? I can relate. And the reason you have these stories is because they reveal to you something. God's God never stops working in his people. God has declared that these are his people, imperfect as they are, and he's going to continue to work in them. Don't miss that. That's what we're seeing here. Abraham Abimelech saw in Abraham a shrewdness. He was sinned against. He recognized what was really in him. But he couldn't get rid of the fact God's with him. And the second thing you're going to notice here is God's presence with his people is recognizable despite their sin. It's fascinating because God's presence with Abraham was more than possessions. You know, the prosperity gospel is going to tell you that being wealthy and healthy are these signs of God's blessing and presence in your life. But Abimelech recognized God's presence with Abraham by God protecting him and Sarah, by God answering his prayers when he prayed for his family to be made well, and for God providing for him and giving him a place. God's presence with his people is recognizable. And the reason for that is because God's presence with us is the, capital letters, definable difference between God's people and And those who aren't God's people. See, it isn't just simply that our sins are forgiven. That's true. But because our sins are forgiven, we have the presence of God indwelling us that is permeating out of all that we do in this life. In the book of Exodus, Moses put it like this. When God told him that he wasn't going up with the people of Israel from that point on, he was ticked off at him because he had (laughs) made a golden calf. And God said, I'm not going up with these people. They're stiff-necked. And Moses said this, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And look at this statement. Is it not your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. If you are not with us, God, we are no different than every other nation of the world. You know the difference between us and Mormons? It's not the morality. It's the presence of the living Christ alive in us. Paul put it like this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the presence of Christ, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You see that word, fr- sealed, It means we're locked in. We are filled with the presence of the risen Christ. And he is the guarantee that God will take care of us until the very end. The distinguishing mark that we are God's people is the spirit of Christ residing within us. That's recognizable. I just want to ask you, when you process Abraham here, is the presence of Christ recognizable in your life despite your sin. Are you quick to repentance? Are you quick to confess and acknowledge where you're wrong? Even to non-believers. Are, do non-believers recognize in your life the presence of Christ, that you're a child of God? See, God is with his people. His presence resides in us. It's recognizable even though we're imperfect. Now you have to ask why. Why does God, why does he sit in us? Why is he in us? What's he doing in us? Let's look at the second point, which is one reason why he's with us. God's people are peacemakers. And we're going to see this in verses 25 through 32, because in verses 25 through 26, we're told about a dispute that has come up between Abraham and Abimelech regarding a well, now, this is fascinating because um in, in so many parts of the world, water rights are a big issue. They're a big issue in our world, right? So that's all that's happening. They're having a dispute over a well. They're having a fight over water rights. And what seems to be indicating from the text is Abimelech's men forcefully took a well away from Abraham that was his. They seized it. That word seized means in hostility they went after it and grabbed it. They took it. When Abimelech heard of this from Abraham, he said, Hey, it's the first time I've heard of this. You've never told me this. But pay very close attention to what happens next. Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and they made a covenant together. Now, this was a business agreement, but it was more than that. It was actually a peace treaty. Abraham agreed to deal with Abimelech's people honestly, because remember his asking, I swear, yes I will. I will, I will deal with them honestly, and here's the proof of that. And then they cut a deal regarding this well. Abimelech agreed to it as well. And to clarify who dug the well, Abraham gives him seven ewe lambs, which was an extravagant gift. Now let's just think about what is happening here, what is transpiring in this moment. Back in Genesis 20, when Abimelech first met Abraham, and Abraham lied to him, and the Lord showed up in a dream, Abimelech sent Abraham on his way, and notice what he sent him away with. Sheep, oxen, and servants. He even gave him 10,000 or a 1,000 pieces of silver because of Sarah's innocence, and told Abraham, Hey, listen, take any part of the land that you want to have, which Abraham does. So Abraham goes, he settles in a particular part of that area of the Philistines, and he digs a well, which Abimelech's dudes violently come and take away from him. Now instead of going to war with Abimelech, notice what Abraham does. He talks to him. He talks about what's happened. He cuts a covenant with the sheep and oxen. Very much might have been the same sheep and oxen he got from Abimelech. And then paid him seven more ewe lambs as a reminder that this well is his. They peacefully agree. They go their separate ways. Abraham lives in that part of the world for quite a long time. How does Abraham handle the conflict? By making peace with a foreign king. Now listen, he had every right to fight. He had every right to go to war. But he didn't. He chose a different route. What's interesting is every theologian is going to tell you that this moment is a moment that Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, and God, the father of his people, wants all of us to hear, but particularly one of the people of Israel to hear, that God's people are peacemakers, and that's to be the way they are to think about things. Now listen, we are remarkably different than the rest of the world. Abimelech's thugs just show us the world. The world takes things by force. The world uses force of strength, force of will, force of intellect, but God's people rely upon God's work through God's ways. A big difference is that we're not—we're—we're we're seeking peace with God and with no one another. We're not trying to play God with one another. A thugs are saying, "That's mine. We're taking it." We're trying to bring peace to this world through God's grace not conflict through human strength. Now this doesn't mean we're passive. I'm going to say it this way. It means we are aggressive peacemakers. Now here's what I mean by that. When the children of Israel were going into the promised land, you can read this on your own at some point. Deuteronomy chapter 20 is your reference point. It is actually laws for warfare. And they were told as they came to the promised land that God was giving them, that when they came up to a city, the very first thing they were to do before they entered that city in conquest was they were to give them, they were them a peace treaty. Offer them peace first. If the city said, yes, we will definitely agree to the terms of peace, then they took over that city in peace. If they rejected the terms of peace, then war enraged. And they were to take it back by force. But notice the first step. Peace. Offer terms of peace. Now, I not about you, when I read my Bible and I look at the conquest of Joshua, I think to myself, all Israel did was go in and take the promised land by force. And therefore, when we go into the world, that's how we're to do it, is take the world by force. But what did they do first? They were to offer terms of peace. The story of Abraham working out a peace agreement with Abimelech was a picture, listen clearly, of foreign policy for the people of Israel. Peace was to be sought first, if at all possible. Now, something radically different changes if they were attacked. If they're attacked, all bets are off. Now, what's fascinating about this is how you see this peaceful lifestyle playing out in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 is very interesting. Jesus said, blessed are those who are the peacemakers. They shall be called what? Sons of God. Romans chapter 12 verses 17 and 18, Paul said that we are to not repay evil for evil, but if at all possible, live peaceably with all. Mark 9, 50, as Jesus is talking about being the salt of the earth, Talks about us having salt in ourselves. You know, salt brings healing. It's tasteful. It's distinct. It brings a distinct flavor to it. And notice what he says. Salt. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, being salty doesn't mean being mean or fighting. It means being at peace with others. Now, I could go on and on about this. I'll list several tomorrow in the blog for this week. But I, but it's obvious from this story and from God's word that we are to be peacemakers. But here's a question for you. This is the big one. Why? Why does God call his people to first offer terms of peace? Why does God call his people to be peacemakers? Why does he say, these are indeed the sons of God? Why? Why does he put a premium on this? Why Why not bring conflict? Why not stir the pot a little bit? Why, why peace? In commenting on this section, A.P. <clears throat> Ross, in his excellent commentary on creation and blessing, wrote this. When Abraham prospered under the blessing of God, he agreed to make a treaty with Abimelech at Beersheba for peaceful coexistence thereby enabling him to serve God in the land of promise. Peaceful relationships with those who regard the blessing of God will follow the the faithful believer to proclaim his name freely. Or we may say it this way, the blessings of peace and prosperity facilitate the believer's proclamation of the faith. If you want a New Testament example of this, you can see it in the Apostle Paul, when Paul told us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we should pray for kings and all those in authority. Now, we do this to go, God, make them repent, change them, make them make laws that we like. But notice the reason Paul said to pray for them, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Now, why? because when we 're at peace with others around us, hear me very clearly, you have more opportunities to share the gospel with them. You can freely live your gospel life without them ever bothering you because you 're at peace with them, and doors swing wide open to the gospel. Let me give you a historical example of this in fifteen hundred you know the story if you're a historian and you know that Martin Luther put 95 theses on the door. Martin Luther began to share about how justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, was the true gospel. The Catholic Church didn't like this very much, and they began to dispute Luther's claims, even wanted to put him at the stake at one point in time. Luther continued to write, continued to preach, and do things publicly. But there was a group of men who did not think things were going as rapidly as they should. Those men took the fight the Catholic Church had begun to burn Catholic churches. At that moment, Martin Luther, who was able to do his work freely and openly, had to go into hiding because the Pope put a bounty on his head was going to kill him. And that gospel work, even though it progressed, it was stopped because of zealots thinking that war needed to happen. War was already happening. And God was using the weapons of his warfare, the gospel, the word of God, and prayer to radically shape Europe. Now, this is really important to us right now in the world we live in. The non-Christian world, friends, is in conflict with God already. They despise the king of peace. They argue, they fight, they rise in anger, they throw accusations and insults, and they try to intimidate And if necessary, they will utilize weapons to get their point across. This is not so for the people of God. We start with peace. Not pacifist, aggressive peacemakers. We're bringing the gospel of peace into a world already in conflict. You don't need to bring conflict to the world. It's already there. You are bringing a message of the gospel of peace to be at peace with God and with others. But the weapons of our warfare, according to 2 Corinthians, are not fleshly or worldly or or built upon conflict quests. They are spiritually powerful to bring down, notice, arguments and ideas that are raised up against the knowledge of God. These are not people. So, are you an aggressive peacemaker? Or are you always looking for a fight? Friends, we are in a spiritual war. You must understand that. The weapons of our warfare are not unrighteous anger, they are not insults and reviling others in return. They are the gospel of grace, the word of God and prayer, and us being aggressive to go and serve people and know people and care for people and love people and reveal to them the beauty of this gospel by speaking it to them. What's interesting is the main reason why Abraham did this is because it mirrors God. When you read about Abraham making a covenant with Abimelech, You should remember back in Abraham's life in Genesis 15 that God did the same thing with Abraham. He made a covenant of peace with Abraham. God made peace with Abraham. What does Abraham do? He goes to Abimelech to make peace with Abimelech. See, we can't leave this moment without recognizing the power of God at work in Abraham and the power of God at work in us. Because God has made peace with us, his enemies, those who despised him, those who rebelled against him, those who put him on that cross through his son, Jesus, he's made peace with us, his enemies through Jesus, shouldn't we as well be thinking about being peacemakers with our enemies? The main reason why, friends, that a peacemaker is the son of God is because a peacemaker emits Imitates their God who is a peacemaker. We are peacemakers because our God is the ultimate peacemaker. Don't miss that. Now let's finish by looking at our last point. God's people remember him. We'll see this in verses 33 and 34. Now they called this place that they made the covenant Beersheba. It actually means the well of seven, which makes sense because Abraham paid seven ewe lambs for this Well, and this became Abraham's home for quite a while. And it's really one of the famous locations in Israel. You're going to notice when you read your Bible, you're going to notice they say from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the north, Beersheba is in the south. And this peaceful covenant allowed Abraham to settle there and allowed for the nation of Israel to grow there. But what's most important about Beersheba is what Abraham did there. He planted a tree And he called upon the name of the everlasting God. He remembered God and he worshiped. Now we've seen Abraham worship before. He's done it in various moments along the journey. But this time is a little different. This time he called upon the everlasting God. A calling upon the everlasting God might not seem like a big deal to you, but in this moment, Abraham saw that God is the God of eternity past. He's the God of eternity future. He is really the one true God over all time. Another way to think about this moment is is God's self declaration about Himself that He is the Great I Am, the God of the now. Abraham in this moment is seeing God as the God of the past, the God of the present, the God of the future. And this is significant in Abraham's story because it's showing us that Abraham is growing in his understanding of God. Abraham doesn't just see God as the God who sees, like Hagar thought of him, or the God who directs and commands, like the God who told him to circumcise his children, his sons, or the God who heals, like the one who healed Abimelech's family, or the God who provides, like the God who gave him stuff as he left various kings that he lied to. No, he now understands that God is the everlasting God, the eternal great I am, present in the here and the now. God is becoming greater and bigger in Abraham's eyes. That's what this story is revealing to us. This is important because it shows us Abraham's spiritual growth. Not only is he growing in influence and prosperity and that other kings are recognizing him and bring their generals along to make a peace treaty, but he, most importantly, Abraham is growing in his understanding of God. He's beginning to leave old sins behind, like lying, and beginning to understand the living God. This act of worship and remembrance reminds us and prepares us for something coming in Abraham's life in Genesis 22 when God calls him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Kenneth Matthews wrote about that moment this way, this attention to Abraham's deity as the eternal one, whose will for the man and the nations cannot be thwarted, provides the striking setting for the challenge to the patriarch's understanding of God in the episode to come. Abraham's spiritual growth and understanding of God prepares him for the greatest test and trial of his life. Friends, listen, if you're a Christian, what this tells you is your God is not finished with you yet. You are not a finished product. He is with you to forgive you. He is with you to help you. He is with you to provide for you. And your God sees you right now where you are. But most importantly, your God is with you. Listen very clearly so that you might know him and understand him more. So that you might remember, marvel, and worship Him. That you might grow in your understanding of who your God is. He is with you so that your love for Him might grow more and more each day as you become more and more like Jesus. And as you grow in your understanding of God, in your worship of God, just like Abraham, old sins begin to fall off. Abraham goes from being a man who's wanting to lie to protect himself, to in Genesis 22, believing that God would raise the dead and willing to offer his most precious son to God. What a transformation. See, overcoming sin does not happen by focusing on overcoming sin. Overcoming sin happens when we begin to remember, love, and worship the living God, and our love for God becomes more than our love for that sin. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have have died, and he died for all. Why? So those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ constrains us, controls us, compels us to put off our sinful selves and live for the risen Christ. Are you growing in your relationship with the living God? Are you growing in your appreciation of Him and your worship of Him? Do you remember daily the good work of God's grace in your life? Maybe you struggle like I do with being a peacemaker. I want to go to war. Peace? Have you ever stopped to think the links that God went to bring peace to you? And are you willing to do similar links for your enemies or those who need to hear the gospel? Maybe you struggle with some particular sin. Do you love that sin more than you love God? Is your knowledge of that sin greater than your knowledge and understanding and appreciation of the living God? Now, this is a fantastic lead-in to the response of taking communion this morning. Because you know what communion does to us? Communion makes us stop. Before you transition, I know what you're getting to think. Okay, look around for the guys to move. Don't. Communion is a moment that we evaluate. We evaluate. We remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross and his life, death, resurrection, and his coming return. We remember. And we also then look inward and say, God, where is it in me that I love sin more than loving you? And we repent. And maybe this morning, it's a moment as well where you know there's an enemy in your life that you have shut the door of the gospel off to because you have been angry. You have been mad. You have fought with them. And you thought that was the righteous thing to do. And you've realized you've shut the door to the gospel. And this morning, the Lord would call you to go back and repent of your own pride and your own anger and open the door for the gospel. Maybe it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ that you know that you're at odds with. And this morning, the Lord would say to you, my people are peacemakers. Before God, you need to set yourself ready to go to them and talk with them. Communion is a moment to just evaluate. If you're not a Christian and you're here, we would ask you to think about your life before the Lord and repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're not a believer and the elements pass you by, it's okay to let them pass you by. We won't. Make a big deal out of that. This is for Christians to do this together. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to take a moment before God to evaluate our souls. The guys are going to get ready to serve, and then after we're done praying, I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this, and then we're going to go from there. So let's pray together. Lay our hearts before God and evaluate ourselves before him. Father, you have spoken to us this morning. About spiritual growth. You've spoken to us about being peacemakers. You've spoken to us about our own anger and issues and things that we battle with. This morning, Father, we we bring to you the sin that we find more compelling than you. And we confess that to you as sin. And so church, if you that's where you are, take a moment before your king. And ask him to forgive you. Tell him what you've done. Acknowledge your need. And hear him say to you that if you confess your sin to me, I will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And Father, we bring those moments of conflict that maybe we've created. We have not done the, if possible with us, be at peace with all people. We, we have done, if at minimal with us, we've tried to be at peace and you've called us to something greater. And so this morning, as you've laid those individuals upon our hearts, we, we ask you to help us, help us to be peacemakers and we commit ourselves to be peacemakers and Right now, church, as the Lord is bringing those people to your mind, it may be your spouse, it may be your child, it could be a co-worker, <clears throat> it could be a fellow Christian that you're navigating through. Name them by name before the Lord and ask God to help you be at peace with them for the sake of the gospel. If you're not a child of God this morning, you're not a Christian, this is a good moment for you before God to just tell Him that you want to be, that you believe that Jesus is the King, that He came and died on the cross for your sin, and you believe He rose again from the dead, and you want to live a life for Jesus. Tell Him that. Father, we pause before you this morning because want to do business with you. And thank you that we want to do business with you because you want to do business with us. And so as we take communion this morning, Father, we we do this in remembrance of you. We do this in response to the work of grace that you have given us, and we do it looking ahead to the coming of our Savior to rescue our souls for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.